Rami's Aid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. I have a very special guest today, Guillermo Hysaw. Guillermo, for over 50 years, has been an outspoken agent for diversity. Growing up in the projects, he was not only the first in his family to go to college, but he received a BA, MA, MBA, and AMBA from Claremont. Guillermo has held VP of diversity roles at Toyota. He is a CEO coach for Vistage, as well as a chief people officer for Shangri-La Industries in Los Angeles. But this all stems from his incredible college experience at the University of Wyoming in the late 1960s and the Black 14, which is essentially the story of the Jackie Robinsons of college football. And you're going to hear about it in detail. This was an intense and inspiring conversation for me, and I know you'll feel the same. That said, here is my conversation with Guillermo Hysaw. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in, and Cleanse on the Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle. But I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the Go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles, if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it, you'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Guillermo Haisa, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and have this opportunity. Appreciate it. <laughs> Guillermo, we're going to have some fun today, as I always do on my shows, but I do have a feeling that this show may end up being the most intense show. I have done up to this point. And I say that because we're going to go deep into racism and diversity, just given your background and story and your career for that matter. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, I lightly covered your background and story for the listeners in my introduction. And I'd like you to start before you get into college and your career, Guillermo, with your upbringing. You mentioned to me before the show started that you grew up in the projects of Watts, Compton and Bakersfield. And I would love for you to tell the listeners about your upbringing, Guillermo, if you don't mind. Yeah, I came from a single parent home. My mother raised myself and initially my older sister. 
and we were in Watts living in the projects and living on welfare. I think probably when I started by second grade, I was already in a gang. And my mother said, this is not going to happen. This is not going to be long term for you and sustainable. We're moving to your grandparents. We're going to live with your grandparents, which meant we were going to end up in Bakersfield. So between Watts and Compton and Inglewood, we moved around and then ultimately ended up in Bakersfield. And then we were in the projects in Bakersfield. (laughs) I apologize for interrupting you, but second grade, you're in a gang. You're, what, seven or eight years old at that time. That's right. And every day I had to fight my way home or fight my way to school. It got old, so you had a choice, either keep doing that as an individual or join a gang. And so I joined the gang. I don't know today which one they ended up being the Crips or the Bloods, but it was one of the two. So I'm not sure which one, but uh, she just was very concerned and, and wanted me out of there. And it was because of me that we left greater Los Angeles and moved to Bakersfield. And we lived in the projects in Bakersfield. And so here I am again. It's it's a little better quality, but, you know, smaller community. And I didn't know anybody and had some cousins, extended family, but I didn't really know them because I didn't, you know, I was too young and didn't grow up with them. So it was interesting to uh, make that transition. So I became, in my opinion, a loner. And so if it wasn't for sports, there would have been no engagement or interaction with some of the people around because my mother was so strict. So I was either at school, I was either in a library, or I was at home. Those were my options in that order. And so it changed my life, to say the least. And I thought I was going to start a gang there in in Bakersfield. (laughs) But now I'll be the leader. (laughs) Sure. Right, right, right. Until I ran up on, and this will be interesting, a young guy that he wasn't listening to me. And so I threatened him and his older sister, I think I was in like maybe the third grade by then or the fourth, she walks up and she slapped me so hard (laughs) that, you know, I literally saw lights. I've never been knocked out, but that was the closest thing to being knocked out. (laughs) And I thought, hmm, I think I better (laughs) reevaluate, you know, and leadership wasn't going to come out the way that I thought it was going to be. So that was the end of my gang days. (laughs) Wow. When you look back at that time, Guillermo, thank you for sharing. I like to, I'm a positive guy. Are there any positives that come out of that childhood upbringing? I know obviously it was rough, but do you look back and say, okay, I can pick one or two things that were a positive of that type of upbringing? Yeah, I, I think the, the fact that I was home and we did have an encyclopedia set. My mother invested in that. And my intent was to start to increase and improve my knowledge of the world. I never imagined that I'd live past 30, and I never imagined I'd ever get out of Bakersfield or even go back to L.A. And so at that time, it was limited in scope in terms of my options. And so I just started every single edition from cover to cover and learned all the different birds, all the different rocks, all the different places around the world. And it became a a plus for me. So when I got into the classroom, I seemed to be 
ahead of everybody else intellectually. And of course, I graduated with honors and I finished high school in two and a half years, even though I stayed on to do what? Play football. (laughs) I was a three sport athlete. So I thought, you know, let me just stay there. And I was a candidate for several different schools in track or football and one or two in basketball. And so I thought, you know, I'll just stay, stay on with my class. And Bakersfield High at that time had uh, their AP students would take their classes at the junior college. And so they would not stay on the campus. So I was in the advanced group. So I, some, half of my classes were there and the other half were back. So that was a plus from staying home and reading those encyclopedias. And it was a, a blessing even though I didn't realize it at the time, for me to have you know been restricted in the way that my mother restricted me turned out to be positive. That's great, Guillermo. We're going to get into your career. And frankly, what you just shared with the listeners is a perfect teaser because what you've, you've done with your career since your childhood is actually remarkable. But before we get into that, I usually start my shows off by asking my guests how they start their day. It's a pretty unique question. And a lot of the listeners feedback on whether it's executives, athletes, celebrities, they really glob on to how different people start their day off. So I want to ask you, Guillermo, how do you traditionally start off your day? The first thing I do before I roll out of bed, open my eyes, I say my affirmations. And I have a series of I am's. And the first one is, I am happy, I am healthy, I am blessed, I am debt-free, and I am (laughs) tax-free. Love that. Love the last two. (laughs) And then I go through the rest of the list. (laughs) And by the time I'm done with all of the things that I'm thankful for and that I am, the universe has heard me, and that's going to determine the rest of my day. And then I'll capsulize it by saying, all good things are going to come to me in abundance easily and frequently today. Blessings will come to me in abundance easily and frequently today. And I'll just go through that. And then there's several more that I'll say, but I start off with those affirmations every single day. Wow. Are you, are you an early bird Guillermo? Is this, you know, four in the morning, seven in the morning, I guess, what time does this start? Yeah, it can be. I, probably require, I'm kind of like Quincy Jones. Uh, (laughs) I only need two or three hours of sleep because all my things are happening early in the morning when nobody else is up and around and nobody else is, you know, and that's the the space. And that's when I can really connect with the universe. So, and then occasionally a good friend of mine will text me, Andy Myers, and I'll get a text at 4.30 in the morning. So there might be a, a dialogue going on there. And you know, he's got thoughts, I've got thoughts. And so that's kind of what happens. Uh, so I, I, I would consider me an all night bird. I'm, I'm like that old saying, you can, you know, if you're going to hoot with the owls, you know, you, you got So I'm there all night thinking and what have you, and then getting sleep in between. How long have you been doing the affirmations in the morning, Guillermo? I'd say my daughter introduced me to the secret, the magic and the power when that books, those books first came out. And I really dove into those books. And ever since then, I started to realize, and for me, it's kind of like, you know, when I joined Toyota and Lexus, 
they put labels on things of behaviors that you were already doing, but you didn't know that that's what you were doing. And so she put some labels on things that I was doing and connections. And so then it all started to make sense. And so I started doing them probably five or six years ago. I believe that's when the uh, those books came out. And then there's been others since then. Is there a workout routine that's part of the morning ritual since you're up 22 hours a day, Guillermo? <laughs> Believe it or not, the workout ritual is in the evenings. My daughter and I will do six miles. We'll walk six miles, do a 6K at least three times a week, if not more. She used to play tennis when she was in high school, and I used to play regional tennis and tennis by age group. And got pretty, I got a few trophies in here. That, but you know, <laughs> it looks good. But, yeah, so we started playing tennis. I just went and got all of our rackets restrung. So we're going to incorporate that into the weekend. And then if she's home early from work and I am, meaning by 530, because our kitchen closes at 7. So we got to be back. My wife says, if you're not here and the kitchen's closing at 7 for dinner. So we'll get our, our 6K in and get that done three times a week. But not in the morning, <laughs> no. Yeah, the, the nighttime. I got it. Thank right. you, Guillermo, for sharing. I, On purpose, Guillermo, I stopped you at high school because I want to jump into your college experience and the Black 14. I'd really like you to dive deep into the story for the listeners to understand and describe the impact on you, Guillermo. And I know you were the outspoken member in 1969. And essentially, the Black 14 is the Jackie Robinson of college football. CBS Sports called that, ESPN, uh, documentary Spike Lee was the executive producer of, which is fantastic, by the way, really good documentary. And so I can set the state and tone for the listeners, Guillermo. I want to pull out a synopsis of the Black 14 book that Ryan Thornburn wrote in 2009. And he said, in the 1960s, one of the strongest voices was that of the Black athlete, not at the University of Wyoming. The only colors that mattered here in 1969 were brown and gold, which were Wyoming's school colors, of course. And the only issue worth paying attention to was Wyoming Cowboy football. Wyoming's 14 black players wanted to wear black armbands during the upcoming game against Brigham Young University in Utah to protest the policies of the Mormon church, which did not allow blacks to enter the priesthood. Then head coach Lloyd Eaton kicked the Black 14 off the team, and everything about Cowboys football changed forever. Guillermo, I say that sentence. I know it does not give the moment justice, but I wanted to set it up for the listeners, and I want to zip my lip now for you to take us back to that time, 1969, Guillermo. Can you give the full story of the Black 14 for the listeners? Very interestingly, during that time period, we were basically saying it wasn't the Mormons' policy about Blacks not getting into the priesthood. It was the why. And the why part was that we were the lowest order of life, lower than a primate. And after death, we couldn't ascend to heaven. And in life, we could not be a Mormon priest. First of all, what did that have to do with football? absolutely nothing. And to bring those policies into the playing field, we were in Provo playing BYU. We had the usual 
inward calling in the in the tackles and in the pileups. And so I'm sure that wasn't unique to that game or for any athlete, black athletes during that era to experience that. It was after the game. We won the game. We're on the sideline cheering. We look across the field. The BYU team is gone. We didn't get to shake hands or anything. So we thought, oh, we didn't beat them that bad. <laughs> you know, we just we just eked out the win. So, you know, so there should have been some exchange. And we ran across the field, but they turned the sprinklers on. And we had to run through the water. And as we were running through the water, everybody, not just the black players, the whole team got wet. The next day, not in the local paper, but in Salt Lake City, the Tribune, which is equivalent to the L.A. Times here or the New York Times in New York. Headline said, Brigham Young washes evil off the field. And then it went through the whole scenario about us being descent, black people being the descendants of Cain, who killed Abel. And Brigham had a you know a vision. And so it went through the whole story. So we decided in the off season, what can we do to counter this? This wasn't a Kaepernick scenario where he was using football as a platform to talk about social issues outside of football. We were using our platform, which we didn't even realize that that's what it was at the time, to say your religious views you're entitled to. We're not saying you should change them. We didn't care how many blacks you had on your team or not, because they had none, or in your staff. We just don't want your religious views brought on the playing field. So we came up with the idea. Actually, it was the Black Student Union, a guy named Dr. Willie Black. And he came up with the idea of maybe you guys should wear armbands. So we created an armband and put a 14 on it because it was we were the only major university in the country that had that was non-HBCU that had more than two black players on the team. And so we went ahead and and designed this armband. And then we thought, you know what, we better get permission from the coach because we knew how stringent he was to wear these armbands. So we need to get a meeting with the coach the next day. And Guillermo, uh, and and I'm sorry to interrupt you just for the listeners to know, at this time in 1969, you're games into the season, you're undefeated, you're number 12 in the country. So I don't want to let that slip that the team was absolutely fantastic at this point leading up to the 1969, October 17th BYU game. So I'll let you keep going, but I, I didn't want that to slip. Yeah, we we uh, we had won the Sun Bowl a few years before. We were in the Sugar Bowl against LSU, and we had eyes on the Rose Bowl. We went, we thought we were going to be playing for a national championship, and this was the season to do it because the prior year we were the only undefeated team in the nation. So thank you for pointing that out. And we were top ten in AP. AP uh, Associated Press had us there, so we thought you know this is our last hurdle here, and we were going to blow BYU out of the tub. But we want to make send a message w- along with that because the coach would say, which he did, go out there and beat them with your black skins. Okay, well, our black skins is what the issue is. This has nothing to do with you know us beating them. That you know we proved that last year, and so we thought, okay, well, Coach Eaton wasn't there because it wasn't a varsity game when we were down in BYU, and so. All of his sub coaches were there with us. So I don't know what they told him and we didn't know. So we wanted to set up a meeting. 
Fast forward, we get the meeting. And instead of going into the conference room, they sent us out in the field house. So all of a sudden, we're field niggas. And I guess I can say that on the podcast. Oh, yeah. You can say fuck, shit, whatever you want. Yeah. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that clears that up. So we're field niggas and and we're being treated that way. So we're sent out in the field house and we're sitting there waiting for him to come out. So he comes out with the coaching staff, walks in. As soon as he sees us and he saw the armbands, he said, gentlemen, as of and he called us gentlemen. He said, as of now, you're all through. In January, you can start looking for somewhere else to go. And we suggest that you go to the Gramlins or the Morgan States or the Alcorns where they might tolerate this. Most of you come from split homes and broken families and don't know who your father is. And I'm the only father that figure that most of you ever have. And you're defying me. I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? And so one of the guys who has two Super Bowl rings now, Tony McGee, he was sitting next to me and Tony stood up because he was ready. to. He was a, a defensive lineman and he was ready. So we had to pull Tony down to restrain him when he made that comment, told him that he grew up in Battle Creek picking up cigarette butts off the street, which wasn't true. His father was a, a very well-known civil rights leader there and worked for Kellogg Company. But anyway, so bottom line is he went on with his narrative and told us we were defying him didn't know who our fathers were, split homes and broken families, and that we were finished. Anytime anybody tried to say something, he'd tell us to shut up and sit back down. And then he stormed out of the field house. So we're sitting there thinking, what are we going to do here? I mean, we just lost our scholarships. We're just, we're kicked off the team. So obviously we're not planning the game tomorrow. And so we didn't know that the governor of the state had, was flying in to see the game. He knew, he didn't know any of this had happened. And the president of the university, Wyoming was a state-supported institution. So technically, the coach didn't have the authority to kick us off the team. But the governor had the authority to fire us. We were treated like employees, which is interesting because today, employees get paid, right? <laughs> so now college football players can get paid. But back then... Our payment was our scholarships and and the opportunity to, you know, be on the team and and, and uh, not have to work. Guillermo, and again, I'm sorry for interrupting, but this is October 16th, 1969, this meeting. The next day is the BYU game. Coach Eaton at the time, because he was a well-respected coach as far as, you know, the community and college football was concerned. But were your thoughts leading up to this that he was going to have this reaction on this meeting or was it, oh man, this didn't surprise me at all? No, we had a great deal of respect for Coach Eaton and he was militaristic. Actually, he and he and my uh, high school coach were in the military together and my high school coach was sending all of his best players up to Wyoming because of that relationship. So there were guys before me that had been in his program and he was an authoritarian and he was militaristic in his thinking and his behavior, more like a drill sergeant than certainly not your buddy. And we thought that he would at least allow us to say, Coach, here's what we experienced at BYU last year. We don't know if you know or not, but here's how we feel about it. And here's how it resonates not only with us, but the few other African-Americans that are on this campus. And so What we wanted to do was ask your permission to wear the armbands. And if we couldn't wear them, 
then what would be the alternative to make it clear to BYU that their religious views had no place on the playing field? The gridiron isn't a place to express those kinds of issues, regardless of what you believe. And we weren't trying to change again their policies or getting us into priesthood or they're the way to heaven or the next life. You know, it was just what's happening in this life. And it was wrong. And so he heard all that later. And in an interview that's, you know, it's documented, he said they could go out there and beat them with their black skins. That would have been enough. Well, it wouldn't have been enough, not for us. And so a civil rights attorney was hired by the Black Student Alliance, came out pro bono, a guy named attorney Bill Waterman out of Detroit, Michigan, and represented us. We lost all through the lower courts. Then we got on the Supreme Court docket for a hearing, which we never got. It was dismissed. And when January rolled around, I think probably three or four guys stayed because he did give us the option of coming back to him, but not as a faction. He considered us coming in as a faction. You can come back individually and we'll assess whether you can come back on this team or not. But the rest of the team, meaning the white players, would have to vote and determine whether or not you can come back on this team. So we had a meeting and we talked to each other and said, hey, everybody's got different circumstance. We're not going to hold it against you if you decide to go back, even though in our heart of hearts, we hope that nobody would and that everybody would leave. But that didn't happen that way. There were a couple of guys that were seniors, going to be seniors, and a couple of guys that felt like they couldn't go anywhere else. So I think there were about four guys that actually stayed. Two of them didn't play ball, but there were two or three that did. The rest of us went back home, different parts of the country, because we were from all over the place. And fast forward years later, they want to do a anniversary celebration. That's when CBS and ESPN started reviving because we were leading up to the 150th year anniversary of college football. And so Herzog did this special called College Football 150, semicolon, America's Greatest Game. And he did 20 episodes, and I'm in episode two. And uh, me and Mike Wilbon, and we kind of, I didn't know he was in it, but I kind of made comments. And we both came out the same way on the money side of the issue that what was really going on there? Was it money or was it social, human rights? It was civil rights, it had nothing to do with it. It had to do with the money. And there was an analogy about what happened at Missouri and what happened at Wyoming. What's the difference? And I said, $1 million. And the interviewer said, what do you mean $1 million? I said, it's, the difference was $1 million. Well, they they protested and the, the whole team and the coaches supported them. Wasn't that the difference? I said, no, it was $1 million. They said, what's $1 million? I said, they got $2 million for their bowl. We only got one. So the difference is $1 million. There you go. That's easy math right there. (laughs) Mike Wilbon said the same thing in a separate interview. So I thought that was hilarious. But I was glad that I was was correct. Uh, It was about money, but I think it was deeper than that. The time was not right. I don't know what pressures Eaton had. So when PBS Sports, uh, PBS came out and CBS Sports was there as well during this anniversary regathering, one of the questions that they posed to the nine of us that participated, there are only 11 of us still alive, three are dead of the 14. And the question was, if you couldn't see Lloyd Eaton today, what would you say to him? 
And everybody had their commentary until it got to me. And then, of course, I paused and I said, well, I'd want to know what were you thinking, Lloyd? What was going through your mind? What pressures were you under? Why didn't you give us an opportunity to just ask you a simple question? Can we wear these armbands to demonstrate how we felt and how we were made to feel as men, not as boys? And what were you thinking when you came out there? What provoked you? What pressures? And so that was the that was the question that I'd want to ask. It wasn't, you know, a rebellion or, you know, pissed off or, you know, a couple of guys said that they'd punch him out and those kinds of theory, I mean, reaction, visceral type things. I no, I I really wanted to know what the what was in his mind, what was happening. He was strong, he had convictions, but I just felt like something's not right here. Something else is going on, maybe pressures in his life or something beyond what we were seeing on the surface. And so that's that's kind of a, a capsulized version of it. But that's been my consistent position from day one. Well, you know, what's interesting, Guillermo. So October 17th, 1969 is the game. The 14 of you do not suit up for that game. The following week, I believe, if I have my history correct, Wyoming plays San Jose State. And San Jose State comes out with the black armbands with a 14 on their arm. And after that, I mean, I'd love for you to tell the listeners what happened to the Wyoming football program, but it was basically a downslide after that. That's correct. They never won another, they've never been in a bowl game in 60 years. They have not been in a bowl game since we left there. They didn't even finish a winning season, and we had already given them a bogey of four. And they beat BYU that, that game that, that weekend, so they had five victories. And then I think they won one more game, then they lost four in a row. So they were out of bowl consideration. And then since then, not only have they not been to a bowl, they haven't been able to recruit the caliber of, and I'm not downplaying any of the guys, <laughs> so guys don't take it that way, but you know, he just wasn't at our level. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it. It's all right. And, and almost everybody at, on our team either went to the pros or had an opportunity to go to the pros. And, you know, a couple of times, you know, Dallas was recruiting me and watching me. And and the comment was, you know, hey, you can't be in the regular draft. You're going to have to come in. And then eventually I got put on waivers because I couldn't play for Dallas. And so, you know, if I couldn't play there and get the regular pay, hey, I might as well leave and get a job. So I did do that, you know, as an alternative. But all the other guys, some of them didn't have that option. And and all of our lives were totally impacted by the change in direction and the impact that it had on us as, as individuals and our families. So it just wasn't about us. You know, it didn't just impact us. And then obviously the generations that will follow. It was a life-changing experience, but I wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, Guillermo, thank you so much for for sharing that. And there is no way, no way for me to comprehend what that time was like for you in the in the 14. C.S. Lewis has a quote that goes, hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. And I brought up that quote, Guillermo, because when I was reading this story, doing my research on you before the podcast started, I was like, my God, this is Guillermo up and down. I love that quote. And I say that 
because I want to brag about you for a minute, Guillermo. Can you give me a minute to brag about you? And listeners, this is amazing. And I mentioned at the intro before you got on, Guillermo, that not only were you the first in your family to go to college, but you received a BA, MA, MBA, AMBA from Claremont. And here's some other accolades. 2002 to 2005, you're the VP of diversity for the Toyota Motor Company. And diversity has always been an issue. It's definitely a big issue now. But 2002, you're way ahead of the curve. 2016 to now, you're the executive chair at Vistage Worldwide, CEO coach. You're the chief people officer at Shangri-La Industries. You just had almost $200,000 donated from the LA Food Bank. You were the external fundraising chair for the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity that raised $4 million to build the Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C. You were featured in the Herzog production of College Football's 150, which you mentioned before. You and Denzel Washington who I think we've heard of before, were featured together at the BET Awards to honor his craft. Jack Nicholas, the famous golfer, gave you your first golf lesson and gave you his white fang putter, which is amazing. And let me just end this. You're blushing right now, and I love it. I'm going to end by this. This is a name drop, so I'm going to hurt my back by picking up all the names off the floor here. These are people you have met, spent quality time with, or can call a friend. Muhammad Ali. Martin Luther King Jr., Charlie Sifford, the black golf legend, Sugar Ray Leonard, Rod Laver, Australian tennis player, Cicely Tyson, actress, Dick Gregory, comedian, Calvin Pete, Marco Mira, Ambassador Andrew Young, Sidney Portier, Maya Angelou, Magic Johnson, and let me rip off some presidents, President Ronald Reagan, President George Bush, and President Barack Obama. Guillermo, you look back at this time you had at the University of Wyoming. When I rip that off and you're blushing, I love it. Do you go, my God, the stuff that you have done, maybe because of that instance or because of your upbringing, you have really taken that to an extreme level, Guillermo. Do you look back ever and say, my God, I've really done this? Or is it just forward thinking you never look in the rearview mirror? I am in awe. And I am humbled. Just listening to you, I am truly humbled for a guy who grew up in Watts, partly, and then the projects, and then Bakersfield, to be where I am now. I am just blessed. That's all I can say is I'm truly blessed. And like I said early on, I didn't think I was going to live to make 30 years old, let alone be 72 you know, and so I don't, I like, I don't like bringing that up, because <laughs> but, but I'm 72. And yeah, I, I never thought in my wildest dream that any of those things and every one of them to me has been a blessing because I've learned from each person. I like the, the quality times, particularly with Muhammad Ali, where we just sat at a table. Nobody, everybody else was doing their and we were just talking like you and I are right now. And I was listening to him and he's trying to tell a joke and, you know, and, you know, just just like, you know, two boys. And I know I wasn't at his level, but I, I felt I was. And, and the fraternity that I joined, there's a there's a saying in there that, you know, you can walk with kings, but yet sit with common men. And so that's what I felt like. You know, I, I need to sometimes be reminded, you know, 
I can adjust my narrative and my my uh, my language and vernacular to the King's English to Ebonics. <laughs> we be doing this or we are doing that. <laughs> <laughs> is there, Guillermo, is there an accolade? I'm sure I missed some, but is there an accolade that you are most proud of when you look back? I would think my college degree, because that started it all. And yeah, I've gotten many awards and trophies and recognition, but I think that one was the one that I was most proud of because I always felt that knowledge was something that was sustainable. Your careers in athletics are not, and and that's proven day in, day out. So the trophies and things are at a point in time, but knowledge is forever. So my first college degree really meant a lot to me and to the family. And unfortunately, because of the Wyoming situation, I was in Michigan and graduated from Oakland University, which at that time, um, Michigan State's Honors College. They didn't even have an athletic team. They do now. But they were part of all of their their honors. Honor students went to Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. And I got my undergrad degree in philosophy and psychology, which is a dual degree. And my mother and extended family couldn't be there. My first wife, who died of cancer, she was there with my oldest living son, because my younger son, he died shortly after the Wyoming thing happened. And so for me, that was not only the proudest moment, but to me, a defining moment. And that accolade uh, of being a college graduate still resonates with me. All the other degrees were well, fine after that, but, but that one was the one. And then for the extended family, and of course, I've got nieces and nephews that went to UCLA and USC and everywhere else, you know, here in California. That was enabled by me doing it and showing them that there was something other than what we were doing in the hood. And and some of them, you know, my family, particularly my mother and I and my older sister were in the projects. But I have to say this, her brothers and their families were not. They all had houses and what have you. So we were literally the black sheep even in our own family. So you know, because we were poor, you know, and I say poor with. P.O. with not too old. We couldn't even afford the whole world. So we were, oh, we wouldn't do it And so, you know, my hand-me-downs came from my sister, not from my older brother. So yeah, that's rough, man. That'll make you tough. Too, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just saying that that to me was a defining moment. And that accolade just gave me more hope. And gave me more reason. I, I named my my uh, second, my third son overall, but his name is middle name is Amumke. And I had a professor when I was at General Motors, and and had I was graduating from Oakland University, and his name was Okonkwa, and his father was the king of Biafra, and they had sent all the boys all over the world to protect them from being being killed in a takeover. So. They could keep the the deity in place. Well, his son's name is Chike. And I asked Patrick, I said, hey, man, what would be a good name for me to have for my son? And he said, Amumke Digiomani. 
I said, what? He said, Amumke Digiomani. I said, what does that mean? He said, I know not what tomorrow brings, so all I have is hope. And he, I said, okay, so which part of that is hope and which part of that is, you know, the, the rest of that narrative? He said, Amumke. So his name is Amari Amumke Haisaw, so hope. And I gave him that name because that's what that accolade gave me was hope. And it gave everybody else in our extended family hope. And that hope has now turned into a reality. So so that's what resonates with me the most. What celebrity, Guillermo, and I'm sure, again, I missed some, but is there one that you can look back and say he or she was the most influential on me? I would say it's like a quilt. And a quilt has each one a different fabric, right? And so the mosaic for me was all of them woven into a quilt. And so that's where I feel the real blessing comes from, is that weave, that mosaic, that fabric that they present to me because each one stood for a different thing in life. Cicely Tyson was strong. She was powerful. But she was also married to my favorite musician, Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so, you know, just being around her and we always ended up at events together and what have you that were being sponsored or BET Awards or something. I'd always end up somewhere with her. So each one, and then Muhammad Ali, I told that story, Sugar Ray Leonard, you know, I got his his gloves right here. I still got them from way back when we were trying to do a sponsorship together up in Seattle and post. And then I see the King's special on HBO with him in there with, you know, Marvin Hagler and those guys, you know, Duran and so and Tommy Hearns. But so I, I would say that that they all have had an impact on me in a positive way. Each one meant something different. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, Guillermo, DE&I. DE&I has been a part of your life for over 50 years, if you look back, right? So you must be ecstatic that massive companies like Microsoft, Johnson Johnson, Kaiser, thousands more are implementing DE&I initiatives in their companies. But something unique about you, Guillermo, I've heard you say, is that it's one thing to implement DE&I into a company, but you talk about communicating the monetary value of having a strong DEI strategy in an organization. And I would love for you to let the listeners know what you mean by that. One of the things that happened when I was at Toyota and Lexus, which by the way are the same company, Toyota's parent company, was that there was a competition corporate wide to select their first diversity and inclusion because the E didn't exist at that time. It was just DNI. And diversity and inclusion executive. And uh, I was in the competition and I was the only one in the competition. I didn't get in it because I wanted to. They suggested that I do it. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, there must be some career path thing here that I don't know. I'm in the sales and marketing. Why did they want me? So anyway, I got in it. And of course, I, I was the one selected. And then it And then it dawned on me. The reason that I'm in this position is because they know that I'm going to monetize diversity and inclusion. And I thought right away, look, there's a huge opportunity 
uh, that's being missed in the LGBT. And there wasn't a queue then, but there's a queue now. And we were working with that organization and there's money being left on the table. So I put together four research instruments that we use to determine market by market. In a major metropolitan area, they call them metropolitan statistical areas or MSAs. And then where there's a single point and only one dealer in town, they call them primary market area or PMA. And so what I did was I wanted to study each one of those markets where Toyota had representation or Lexus. And we used what was called anthropological data, which was age groups, ethnological data, which is race and gender, psychographics, which is buying intentions and how do you spend your money once you make it. And of course, demographics, which is a catch-all for earnings and income. And we took all of those and profiled them and cross-matrixed them with sales of all products. So I could tell in your household, uh, Romy, what exactly your fleet of cars are. Even better, Andy's household. I know who's yeah. driving, you know, who's got a Rolls and who's got, you know, on the low end of Mercedes. So we would take a look at all of that and then tie it into gross per car. And I don't want to get too deep in the woods. But anyway, I'd go into a dealership and say, do you, you know, this, we're going to do an assessment of your sales and service performance. You have an agreement. You don't own the franchise, but your performance is not here guess how much money you left on the table last year? And then because you're not focused on the diversity in your market, what are you talking about? So I'd show them how many African-Americans, what the average gross revenue, how many did you sell to? How many Hispanics? And we went by every ethnic group. How many females? You know, Lexus became known as the female car of choice. So over 65% of the buyers for Lexus are women. Their husband may have BMWs or Mercedes, but the lady has the car that's most reliable, has the luxury, you know, it's not going to break down on her. And so I tie it into money. The Japanese knew that I was going to monetize diversity. And then the inclusion part was Penske, who's a good friend of mine, and Roger Penske and, and his son came out and, hey, they started advertising. We speak 36 different languages here at, in El Monte. And they're the largest Lexus dealer in the country with over 20,000 Lexus a year. And then they're the largest Toyota dealer in the country. So they started advertising right away. We speak, you know, because they wanted that diversity to come to their dealerships. And so somebody that looked like you, that knows your culture, you're not going to feel cheated. And so I was able to monetize that. Fast forward, I ended up sitting on a board put together by a friend of mine who runs a magazine called Black Enterprise Magazine, Earl Graves Jr. But I was also friends with his father before he deceased. But his nickname is Butch. And I gave them their first ad pages. He came into Lexus to meet Guillermo Hysaw. So I greet him. We go sit in the conference room and we sit there a few minutes. He's not saying anything. I'm waiting. Hey, give me your presentation so you know I can decide whether we're going to give you ad pages or not. And he finally says, hey, man, I appreciate the fact that they sent a brother in here to meet me. But when is Guillermo going to get here? I am Guillermo Hysol. He was totally shocked because he wasn't expecting anybody to look like me to have the name Guillermo. 
And so Butch will tell you to this day, he got his first ad pages and that diversified his portfolio. And then, of course, Toyota gave him some import ad pages for his magazine. He created what was called years later when I became the the diversity, equity and inclusion uh, vice president for Toyota and Lexus worldwide. He created a diversity advisory board. So he went around the country and every ethnic minority that had that title, which was almost everybody, everybody, because there were no white, except for I think there was one company that that had that. But other than that, came and put this board together and we'd fly to New York quarterly and have board meetings and exchange ideas. So I gave him this idea about monetizing and taking anthropological data, ethnographic data, psychographic and demographic into whatever business you're in and monetize it. Because anytime you talk to a CEO or a board, the only color they're worried about is two, red and black. And so there is a correlation (laughs) between I tell them your black skin and the black on that financial statement. And so that's what they were. And you're going to and then ultimate color is what? Green. And so that's what it you know, that was my experience with uh, diversity and inclusion. And there are a number of things that are still left behind. We did a hire our heroes, which is the military people. We were looking for technicians and the military has the smartest force of people that are out there now because they're technologically savvy. And so we were using them as techs. And I said, well, let's do this. And all the other manufacturers are giving them a discount on a car. Let's give them the most important family value, a job. And I got that from a congressman named Ron Brown, who, if you do the history on him, he was killed in an airplane crash. But I knew Ron and he made that comment. So I can't own the quote, but he said the most important family value is a job. And so to this day, we have a Hire Our Heroes program at Toyota. And sometimes you'll hear a commercial say the best new cars make the best used cars. And we put that on every media. So whether it's LGBTQ because we targeted them or female uh, programming or whatever it is, just in overall is those kinds of concepts. Guillermo, corporate executives out there, leaders in the community that are listening, leaders of just their house. What would you say to someone that says, Guillermo, I want to do what you did. How do I communicate monetizing DE&I for my company? What would be the first step? I'll just start there. The first step would be, who is the research company that you're working with in terms of your marketing strategy? You'd have to look at, you know, is it consistent with, you know, what your marketing strategy is and how you want to roll out your branding strategy And if those things are in alignment, then obviously the next step, I say obviously for me, the next step would then be how do we then get into how we monetize this? And can I get the data sets? And if they give them those four data sets, they'll go and pull, do the research, no matter what your product and or service is. And they'll fit into one of those buckets. It's either going to be age groups. It's going to be buying patterns. It's going to be gender and race, or it's going to be their income. So different income levels, depending on what product or service you offer, those are the four key ones that any research and marketing team will come back to you with. 
Guillermo, uh, this is an off the cuff question for me, but when you look back, and I don't, you know, you're a young 72, no doubt about it. So I don't want this question to come out the wrong way. But what what would you like Guillermo to be remembered about you at the end of the day? Uh, that's a that's a tough question because I don't see my end of the day being near. No, that's why I said I'm saying it with caution. I didn't want to say that. No, I know you got a lot left. <laughs> However, probably someone who cared, someone you could trust. Because a lot of times when I'm doing coaching and what have you, it's confidential confidentiality. But ultimately, uh, I made a difference. And sometimes what you don't know is when you really make a difference in somebody's life, you may say something, you may do something, and you don't know how powerful that is. I use the example of The Godfather. I learned a lot from watching that movie, and I watch it every time for life lessons. <laughs> and there's one scene in there where one of the one of the brothers is going to be state's witness, and the Carleones fly in his brother from Sicily comes in the in the room and sits down. The brother starts to change his, his testimony during the deposition, and they ask him why. And who is that man sitting next to you? And the Corleone stands up and said, this is his brother that came here from Sicily and just to support his brother. And the guy ends up saying, oh, the Corleone family is great. The Corleone family is wonderful. They're the best people. So he goes on with his narrative, right? And so at the end, the brother gets up, they put him back on the plane, and he flies back to Sicily. Well, what was the power in that scene? The brother showed up. He never said a word. He was just present. And that's what I want to be. And he changed the whole course for the Corleone family, for the, the prosecutors that couldn't prosecute the Corleones by just showing up. You don't know sometimes whose life you're impacting by just being present. That's how I'd like to be remembered. Hey, Guillermo made a difference in my life. And you are, Guillermo. You've made a difference in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, from what you shared growing up to your college experience, the Black 14, and what you've done in the corporate world has been mind-boggling. And I know that there's a a lot of people that appreciate you. And when the listeners listen to this, it's going to be even more so. And I like to wrap up my shows with some fun rapid fire questions for my guests. And so if you're ready to rock and roll, Guillermo, I'm going to let them fire. All right, I'm ready. Okay. My first one is you mentioned football and basketball. I don't think you mentioned baseball. Did you ever play baseball growing up? Yes, I did. Mike Garrett was a good friend of mine, and yeah, that's another story. But <laughs> I tried to play baseball, but it, it conflicted with the other sports. All right. Well, my first question is a walk-up song. So Major League Baseball players nowadays, they walk up to the plate with a bat in their hand, and they get a song playing for them to pump them up, inspire them, whatever that is. So Guillermo saw you have a bat in your hand. You're walking up to, we'll just say Dodger Stadium. Since you're down in L.A., what song is playing for you? It would have to be the same one we used when we played football. It was The Temptations. And it was, I can build a castle with a single grain of sand. I can make a ship sail on dry land. Then I changed the lyrics to, hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball, ball, ball. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a great (laughs) answer. All right, Guillermo, next one. 
What is one thing, and this will be interesting given your your background, but what is one thing, Guillermo, that you do not mind spending money on? My family. Mm. My wife and my daughter, I couldn't spend enough money to improve the quality of their life in every phase of their life. So I don't even... And there's no budget there and no, yeah, well, there he is in my mind. If I don't have it, then we can't spend it. But, but, but there's no reservation about you know, my family. And that means my extended family, too, if they need it. So can't argue with that answer. My next one, uh, favorite quote I mentioned, you know, I mentioned on almost every show, I'm a quote geek. And I will remember the one you mentioned earlier. I know not what tomorrow brings, but all I have is hope. That one's that one's going to stick with me. I like that. But is there a quote or quotes, Guillermo, that either you're into right now or, or stick with you on a daily basis? Yeah, here's one that I often share in my coaching sessions. When the burdens are so great that you can't bear them, you should turn to the universe and say, and I quote, relinquish my attachment to the outcome and leave the details to the universe, unquote. I relinquish my attachment to the outcome and leave the details to the universe. That one is powerful and it works. And you don't have to wait a couple of days to see the results. They are like, you know, within moments of you having said that, you'll start to see a change. So that's that's my favorite and most powerful quote. That was powerful. No doubt about it. Okay, next one. And this one is unique for you as well, given the many different career paths that you have had. But if you, Guillermo, uh, take away coaching, diversity, all the things that you've done in your career, if you could choose a completely different position, career position, what would it be and why? I would be a doctor of psychopathology of early childhood. Wow, that's specific. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Somebody asked me that question just yesterday. So I was, and we were talking about it in my Vistage meeting, what would you do? And psychopathology of early childhood is, you know, philosophy is the origin of thought and ideas. Psychology is the behavior that you use to, for aspects of the thought and how you express the thought, but how you process information and ideas impact outcomes and socioeconomic issues and social equity and equality issues. In essence, you can determine the difference between becoming a bigot and someone who's biased. A bigot is mentally rigid. A a person with bias has mental flexibility. And no matter what environment you come from or what life socioeconomic strength, it's going to be impacted by thought and ideas and how you use them. And so to me, I would have the greatest impact on change if I were a psychopathologist of childhood. And I was studying it at University of Chicago, Illinois, and had to drop out to get a job. <laughs> I was in a five-year program, and I would have been Dr. Guillermo Hysaw, and uh, that's what I would have been. You're Dr. Guillermo Hysaw to me, Guillermo. I mean, he's <laughs> fantastic at it. That's a great answer. <laughs> All you. right, next one. What would you do if you were given a free 60-second advertisement during a Super Bowl game? It's the largest audience on you know an event in the globe. What would you want to tell the world? I would want the world to reflect on the human condition. 
And in order to do that, I would do use that 60 seconds footage to have thought-provoking footage that would run a reel depicting human conditions all over the world. No narrative, no voiceover, just showing the picture of what? People since the beginning of time until now and how the human condition has changed and or gotten worse or whatever. It's the essence and the quality of life and death. I do, and 60 seconds is a long time because most commercials, having been an advertising guy, there's only 30 seconds. So you're almost into an advertorial when you get to 60 seconds, and that's how I would use it around the human. And- you're the first person, Guillermo. I like that. The first person that's picked up on that because 30 seconds is the average. And I ask 60 seconds on purpose because of how long that is. And you're the first one that's actually picked up on that. And I love how you have no words in 60 seconds. And if someone is dialed in for 60 seconds, that 60 seconds can feel like an hour if you do it right. I really like that answer. Okay, next question. If you were stranded on an island and could pick any celebrity, dead or alive, to be with you, who would it be and why? I would pick Stephen Hawking. Wow. Okay. And him being a theoretical physicist, and a cosmologist, I just think that there was so much that he had yet to give and so much that we don't know about the universe. And I found him totally fascinating in terms of the knowledge and the cosmos. And that's to me is the most powerful thing that is around us and that we may have emanated from. And I'm not talking about UFOs, even though they're maybe in psyches too, but I would spend that time with him because I think it would be awesome to just listen to him and the powerful mind that he has and try to understand the origin of this thought. Last question, Guillermo, the ultimate dinner. There's no (laughs) consequences tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Yes. (laughs) Whatever meal in the world you want, Guillermo, what is on the plate or plates? And the glass. I would have my daughter and my wife prepare all of the my favorite seafood and Korean favorites. I'd have oh, you're going to have to describe that. I'm a seafood lover. (laughs) Oh yeah. And and then in the glass, I'd have a a nice cabernet, and maybe to as a starter, crystal. You wouldn't think a guy from the projects would be talking about that. But, you know, hey, so, why not? Why but, not? Is there a Cabernet Guillermo that you, you're into right now? Mandavi. They have a reserve. Oh. And Opus One came from the Mandavi family. So Opus One would be the one that I'd be drinking. <laughs> oh, my God. If I, if I could share a bottle of Opus One with you, Guillermo, this conversation <laughs> would go four more hours. I love it. That's a great answer. Guillermo, this was a very, very special time for me. And I guarantee you the feedback I'm going to get from listeners is going to be absolutely positive. You've influenced so many lives just with what you do and what you've done. And people hearing this conversation are going to get inspired. I know it. Is there anything, Guillermo, before we part ways that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yes. Thank you. And I'd say that three times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you my deepest gratitude for the opportunity to even have a voice, but certainly for you to give me a voice 
no matter who hears it, but guess what? The right person will hear it and it'll make a difference. So for that, I humbly say thank you. Guillermo, that's a fantastic way to end the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks again, listeners, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Guillermo Hysaw. You can find Guillermo on LinkedIn or Vistage Executive Coaching, which is just www.vistage.com. And you can find me at my website, ramize.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and I hope you all learned something interesting.